This is the JPGN podcast for January 2009. I'm James Liu. This podcast will outline selected articles from this month's issue of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. For more information and to access complete articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. That's www.naspghan.org. Our first article is entitled, The Role of the Multi-Channel Intraluminal Impedance Technique in Infants and Children, by Michelle Van Wyck, Mark Beninga, and Tahir Omari. Recently, multi-channel intraluminal impedance was added to the repertoire of tests available to study esophageal pathophysiology in children. This technology has since been used in two major areas. First, it has been used as a diagnostic test for gastroesophageal reflux disease. The main advantage over traditional pH monitoring is its ability to detect both acid and non-acid gastroesophageal reflux and to discern between liquid and gas reflux. When a pH sensor is added to the impedance catheter, important information about the acidity of a reflux event can be gathered. Integration of multiple pH sensors further enables this technology to evaluate the proximal extent of a gastroesophageal reflux episode. The second area in which the role of this technology has been investigated is that of esophageal function testing. Manometry classically reveals information about esophageal pressure patterns and sphincter function, but does not inform us about bolus flow. Impedance catheters not only detect the presence of esophageal flow, but also generate information on the direction of flow, duration of bolus presence, completeness of bolus clearance, and composition of a bolus. The combination of multi-channel intraluminal impedance with manometry enables determination of the relationship between esophageal pressures and flow, further enhancing evaluation of esophageal function and assessing the mechanisms of esophageal volume clearance. This technique will improve our understanding of pathophysiology and mechanisms of pediatric GERD and other esophageal motility disorders. Our second article is entitled Morphological Changes of the Enteric Nervous System, Interstitial Cells of Cajal, and Smooth Muscle in Children with Colonic Motility Disorders by Vandenberg, DiLorenzo, Mosa, Beninga, Bocksteins, and Luquet. Objectives. To evaluate the relation between colonic manometry findings and the colonic enteric nervous system, interstitial cells of Cajal, and smooth muscle morphology. Patients and methods. Colonic specimens from surgical resections or full thickness biopsy specimens were assessed from a cohort of children who underwent colonic manometry before surgery. Colonic manometric patterns were subdivided into high amplitude propagating contractions, low amplitude propagating contractions, absence of contractions, and low amplitude simultaneous contractions. Immunohistochemistry was performed to identify abnormalities in the enteric nervous system, interstitial cells of Cajal, and smooth muscle layers. Results. Study participants included patients with Hirschsprung's disease, N equals 4, 
chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction, n equals 1, and idiopathic intractable constipation, n equals 8. 37 ganglionic segments were studied. Abnormalities in myenteric plexus were recognized in segments of all manometry groups, and no differences could be identified when they were compared with segments with high-amplitude propagating contractions. All of the segments showed an abnormal interstitial cells of Cajal plexus, and no statistical difference could be identified between the four groups. P equals 0.08. Homogeneous expression of smooth muscle actin was observed in all of the segments. Conclusions. In this cohort, we were unable to classify specific manometric findings as reflective of myopathic or neuropathic abnormalities in patients with motility disorders. Caution should be used when predicting the type of neuromuscular disorder based on colonic manometry. Our third article is entitled, 14 Years of Eosinophilic Esophagitis, Clinical Features and Prognosis by Spurgel, Brown-Whitehorn, Bosolil, Franciosi, Schuker, Verma, and Leacurus. Objective. To determine the natural history of treated and untreated eosinophilic esophagitis and examine the presenting symptoms of EE. Patients and Methods. Retrospective and prospective chart review of all patients diagnosed with EE at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. EE was defined as greater than 20 eosinophils per high-power field after treatment with reflux medications. Results? We identified 620 patients in our database in the last 14 years and 330 patients with greater than one year of follow-up for analysis. The number of new eosinophilic esophagitis patients has increased on an annual basis. Of the patients presenting with EE, 68% were younger than 6 years old. Those including failure to thrive were the most common presenting symptoms for eosinophilic esophagitis. 11 patients had resolution of all of their food allergies, and 33 patients had resolutions of some of their food allergies. No patients had progression of eosinophilic esophagitis into other gastrointestinal disorders. Conclusions EE is a chronic disease with less than 10% of the population developing tolerance to their food allergies. EE does not progress into other gastrointestinal diseases. Our next article is entitled Childhood Esophagitis Then and Now by Joyce Lee, Robert Baker, Abdur Khan and Susan Baker. Objectives. It is not known whether the prevalence of childhood esophagitis has changed over time. In children, the intraepithelial eosinophil is considered the hallmark of esophageal inflammation. This study compares the prevalence of intraepithelial eosinophils in esophageal biopsies obtained from 1980 to 1988 and 2001 to 2002. Patients and methods. This study reevaluated all of the esophageal biopsies obtained at a single center during two periods, 1980 to 1988 and 2001 to 2002. Histological appearances were characterized and eosinophils per high power field were quantified. Results. In total, 1,058 esophageal biopsies from 510 subjects were reviewed. Between 1980 and 1988, 
247 biopsies from 188 subjects were evaluated. Of these, 62 subjects met the criteria for esophageal disease, and 106 had no specific pathological changes. Between 2001 and 2002, 811 biopsies from 322 subjects were evaluated. Of these, 132 subjects met the criteria for esophageal disease, and 182 had no specific pathological changes. A statistically significant increase in the prevalence of esophageal inflammatory disease was observed comparing the recent group with the remote group. Eosinophilic esophagitis is thought to be distinct from other types of esophagitis in pathogenesis, epidemiology, histology, and treatment. Some suggest the prevalence of eosinophilic esophagitis has increased in recent years. We sought evidence for an increase in histological changes consistent with eosinophilic esophagitis. No matter whether histology consistent with eosinophilic esophagitis was defined as 25, 20, 15, or 10 eosinophils per high power field, no increase in prevalence was found. Conclusions this study demonstrated no evidence for a change in the density of eosinophilic infiltrates in esophageal biopsies during the 22-year period. The study showed a statistically significant increase in the prevalence of esophageal inflammatory disease across the same period. Our next article is entitled, pH-only acid reflux events in infants during later phases of the feeding cycle are less acidic and cleared more efficiently than classic two-phase acid reflux events by Frederick Woodley and Hayat Mosa. Background. Gastroesophageal acid exposure in infants is a function of four acid gastroesophageal reflux types. Classic two-phase, single-phase, and pH-only events, as well as re-reflux episodes. In symptomatic infants, classic two-phase events and pH-only events make up the majority of total acid gastroesophageal reflux events, including events lasting five minutes or longer, and are responsible for the majority of total gastroesophageal acid exposure. Also, in symptomatic infants, chemical clearance efficiency of classic two-phase events has been shown to be influenced by feeding. Pathogenicity of acid gastroesophageal reflux involves variables that include frequency, duration, and pH of these reflux events. The purpose of this investigation was to compare classic two-phase episodes and pH-only events on the basis of these variables during discrete periods related to feeding. Patients and methods. Impedance and pH tracings from 12 symptomatic infants with a median age of 20 weeks were examined. Mean frequencies, durations, and nadir pH values were calculated during feeding, the first hour postprandial, the second hour postprandial, and fasting. Results. Compared with classic two-phase events, pH-only events were cleared significantly more efficiently during the first hour postprandial with a p-value of 0.02, second hour postprandial with a p-value of 0.0001, and fasting with a p-value of less than 0.0001, and were less acidic during second hour postprandial with a p-value of 0.0005, and fasting with a p-value of less than 0.0001.
Whereas clearance of classic two-phase events became increasingly less efficient, clearance of pH-only events did not fluctuate significantly during the course of the feeding cycle. Conclusions The lower acidity and more rapid clearance during second-hour postprandial and fasting suggest that pH-only events are likely to have a different clinical impact compared with classic two-phase acid gastroesophageal reflux events during later phases of the feeding cycle. Our next article is entitled, Is Endoscopic Retrograde Cholangiopancreatography Valuable and Safe in Children of All Ages? By Vegting, Tabers, Tamanyao, Aronson, Beninga, and Rouse. Objective. To evaluate indications, findings, therapies, safety, and technical success of endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, or ERCP, in children of the Emma Children's Hospital Academic Medical Center in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Design. Descriptive. Retrospective analysis by medical records. Patients and methods. Information was obtained by chart review of patients between 0 and 18 years who underwent ERCP from 1995 to 2005 in our center. The following data were analyzed. Indications, findings, therapies, safety, and technical success. Success was defined as obtaining accurate diagnostic information or succeeding in endoscopic therapy. Results. 61 children, aged 3 days to 16.9 years, mean age 7.0 years, underwent a total of 99 ERCPs. Of those patients, 51%, or 31 out of 61, were younger than 1 year. 84% had biliary indications, and 16% had pancreatic indications for the performance of ERCP. The complication rate was 4%, or 4 out of 99, and included substantial pancreatitis and mild irritated pancreas. No complications occurred in children younger than one year. Conclusions ERCP is a safe and valuable procedure for children of all ages with suspicion of pancreatic obiliary diseases. Indications for ERCP are different for children and adults. A laparotomy could be prevented in 12% of children with suspicion of biliary atresia. Further research is required to determine the role of MRCP versus ERCP. Our next article is entitled, Wilson Disease in Children, Analysis of 57 Cases, by Nina Manolaki, Georgia Nicolopolo, George Daikos, Eleni Panagiotakaki, Maria Setis, Eleftheria Roma, Emmanuel Kanavakis, and Vasiliki Siriopolo. Objectives. Wilson disease has a wide spectrum of clinical manifestations. Affected children may be entirely asymptomatic and the diagnosis problematic. Herein, we present the clinical and laboratory characteristics of 57 children with Wilson disease and point out the diagnostic difficulties in a pediatric population. Patients and Methods Clinical and laboratory data were collected from 57 consecutive children with Wilson disease. Evaluation included detailed physical examination, conventional laboratory testing, genetic analysis, and liver biopsy. 
Results. The mean age at diagnosis was 9.27 plus or minus 3.62 years, with a range of 4 months to 18 years. 20 patients were symptomatic, 19 were referred because of abnormal liver function test results and or hepatomegaly, and 18 received their diagnoses after family screening. 22 patients had both Kaiser Fleischer rings and decreased serum ceruloplasmin levels. 13 had urinary copper excretion after penicillamine challenge over 1600 milligrams over 24 hours. And 3 had liver copper content over 250 milligrams per gram of dry weight. Of the remaining 19 patients, 17 had both low serum ceruloplasmin of less than 20 milligrams per deciliter and increased urinary copper excretion over 75 milligrams per 24 hours before or over 1,000 milligrams per 24 hours after penicillamine challenge. In two patients with equivocal cases who had serum ceruloplasmin 26 milligrams per deciliter, the diagnosis was confirmed by genetic analysis. No correlation was found between specific mutations and the disease phenotypic expression. Chelating therapy was well tolerated and the outcome was satisfactory. Conclusions. Wilson disease in children may be obscure and requires extensive investigation to establish the diagnosis. Genetic analysis is needed in equivocal cases. Our next article is entitled British Pediatric Surveillance Unit Study of Biliary Atresia, Outcome at 13 Years by P.J. McKiernan, Alastair Baker, Carla Lloyd, Georgina Miele Vergani, and Deirdre Kelly. Background. Little information is available on contemporary, prospectively collected data on the long-term outcome of national cohorts of children with biliary atresia. Objective. This study aimed to describe the current outcome of a national cohort of children with biliary atresia. Patients and methods. All 93 cases of biliary atresia in the United Kingdom and Ireland diagnosed between March 1993 and February 1995 were followed up prospectively. Results. A total of 91 children underwent Kasai portoenterostomy in 15 individual centers. Only two centers treated more than five children annually. Median age at last follow-up was 12 years, with a range of 0.25 to 14 years. 15 children, or 16%, have died. 10 after unsuccessful portoenterostomy. 1 of sepsis after successful portoenterostomy. And 4 after liver transplantation. 42, or 45%, underwent liver transplantation at a median age of one year, with a range of 0.5 to 9 years with a 90% survival. All 41 children with failed portoenterostomy and two without portoenterostomy died or underwent liver transplantation at a median age of 0.8 years with a range of 0.25 to 6.5 years. When the portoenterostomy was successful, 40 of 50 patients, or 80%, are alive without liver transplantation. The 13-year actuarial survival without liver transplantation is 43.8% overall and is better in children treated at centers that treat more than 5 cases yearly, 54% versus 27.3% with a p-value of 0.005.
Conclusions If the portoenterostomy is successful, then few children with biliary atresia will need transplantation before adolescence. Children with biliary atresia should be treated in experienced centers to maximize the chance of successful surgery. Our final article is a short communication entitled Fecal B. Defensin II in Children with Inflammatory Bowel Diseases by Nathalie Capel, Nasser Ben-Ahmed, Alain Morali, Johann Svan, Danielle Cagnoni, Olivier Goulet, and Frank Rumele. Defensins, endogenous antibiotic peptides, are part of the intestinal epithelial barrier. In this pilot study, we analyzed the possibility of measuring fecal B defensin 2 in comparing inflammatory and non-inflammatory conditions. In samples from healthy control individuals, low levels of fecal B defensin 2 were detectable, which markedly rose under inflammatory conditions, with p-value equal to 0 0.0002 versus normal control individuals, the highest levels being observed in patients with ulcerative colitis, median 356 nanograms per gram with a range of 40 to 527. Despite frank inflammation, Crohn's disease patients with colitis have significantly lower, albeit enhanced, fecal B defense in two levels than did ulcerative colitis patients. These data confirm the possibility of quantifying fecal B defensin 2 in feces and indicate that colitis in Crohn's disease and colitis in ulcerative colitis differ from each other with respect to their ability to secrete fecal B defensin 2. One final note, Dr. Jeffrey Techman's selected summary entitled Biliary Atresia, Draining Our Certainty, which was included in the November and December issue of the podcast, will actually publish in this issue. This concludes the JPGN podcast for January 2009. The executive producer is Daniel Gelfond. The editor-in-chief of JPGN is Eric Sibley. The JPGN podcast is recorded by the Pediatric GI Fellows of Stanford University. For more information and to access full articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org.